I'd like to introduce our speaker tonight. She didn't know she was speaking tonight until about, what, 6 o'clock, 530, 530? And uh, I'm going to ask her if she would speak. Uh, this is Aya Damadira, and Aya is a term of respect for a teacher, and um, here we use Bikwini, but the word Aya uh, is the same. Uh, Bikuni is a female monk, and Aya, what is the direct translation? It's a teacher? So uh, either is okay. So some people will call me Aya, but the, the, our tradition here is I'm Bikuni. So Aya is a Bikuni, but her, she's, she uses the title Aya. And she lives in Colorado Springs and has her own center, and she has an incredible background. I've, I've always wanted to spend more time finding out about what you studied in England, and you were in the monastery there for many years, in Australia, and she's traveled around the world with to, to be with different teachers and different monasteries. And so she's going to do whatever she wants to do tonight. <laughs> And Bhante Bhati and I will help out if there any, if there's anything she wants us to, to help her with. So thank you so much. She was here uh, for a few days, and then she extended her trip by one day. So that's why we hadn't planned it originally. She was leaving early this morning, and uh, she decided to stay one more day. So that's why she we were able to grab her. I was able to have her speak in Elkhorn with my group there last Thursday, but with the precept ceremony, there wasn't a time slot for her to speak here. So we, we had to grab her when we could, even without giving her any advance notice. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's my honor and privilege to be here with you all. I had two thoughts um, regarding how we could do this um, remainder of our time together. And that is, one, um, if any of you have questions, you could ask something that's been on your mind regarding practice, um, your practice of meditation, something you struggle with in your life, how to apply the Buddhist principles in your life. That's always really excellent, and I'm sure if you have a question, it will be relevant to many people in the room. So that's one thing. Um, if there's absolutely no questions, then I can talk about something else. But first, I'd like to invite you, in case there are any thoughts or questions that come up, something maybe you've been contemplating. Yes? There seems to be some which I picked up from the Buddhist, I'm a yogi. We refer to the eye mudra as the point between the eyebrows, the origin of the nose, not the end of the nose. That's incorrect. You become cross-eyed. Yogis are taught to put the attention of the mind in the gate of our eyes and the spot between the eyebrows as a break upon the mind that starts worries and cares. Well, I haven't studied the yoga tradition, so I can't speak authoritatively on that. When the Buddha talks about putting mindful attention in front of oneself, it's often thought that it is either at the breath 
at the nostrils or below the nostrils or could be at the chest area noticing rising and falling there or at the abdomen noticing rising and falling there so I have heard that if you do focus in a really hard concentrated way you can get a headache so it's it's not about forcing your attention um, as you say if if you if you focus too hard in one area and you notice you get a headache well then try something else because I don't think that Buddha's intention was for us to strain and struggle with the practice so I don't know if that addresses what we're just taught place our attention to the mind should our attention wander from this spot gently but firmly, firmly bring it back again and again to the mid-spot between the eyebrows the seat of divine perception in man okay even, even on the, uh, the statue in the back there seems to be an indication of something in its mid-forehead like the divine's eye right, right do you want to say something? Uh, I think that's not Todd, that's that little uh, what is that? Bindu? Kind of like a raspberry mole, actually. It's a swirl of hair, right? It's a, that's just a, a kind of a traditional way the Buddha is, is uh, the, 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 the traditional way a Buddha looks has that little, little tuft of hair that swirls a certain way. Oh, that in the, the Hindu tradition, they often use the, the bindu or the mark there. I think it is to um, signify that this is a one of the chakras, one of the, the central, in the central channel where the, um, we can focus. Now, with, with the Buddha's teaching, this knowledge or awareness is what's really important. And that knowledge and awareness is not an intellectual just knowing all the facts about something it's it's a deep knowing from your one's experience and so even though this is often referred to maybe as that eye of knowledge did you say that okay okay so i i I don't think the Buddha was talking so much about anatomically and intellectually knowing as much as this, um, you know, vijja in, in Pali means knowledge, avijja means ignorance. So this is not much, this is not just like ignorance, I don't know what, what the, um, the capital of Hungary is or something like that. It's not that kind of ignorance. It's more about the ignorance about the things that really, really matter. The ignorance about the, the um, three characteristics of existence, such as everything is impermanent and subject to change. This is one of the things you chanted today here. Um, another thing is the ignorance that things that we think are going to provide lasting satisfaction don't. But we get fooled. We forget and so that's what mindfulness is about. Sati means remembering. Remembering to bring our attention back to the present moment. Remembering that um, this, this body-mind 
is a constant flow and flux, that impermanence. And also, then if we hold on tightly to any part of that experience, and we identify with it as being me, who I am, that's also another form of ignorance. We're creating a sense of self where there really isn't one. We assume that there's a constancy. And yet, if we truly investigate, then there isn't. We'll see that for ourselves. That's the kind of knowledge the Buddha said we need to cultivate. If you read about that in a book, you might go, well, I believe it or I don't believe it. And that's your prerogative. But if you actually know it for yourself, you don't have to believe. Because that kind of knowledge is beyond belief. Are there any other questions? Do you incorporate any hatha yoga in your preparation for higher states of meditation? Um, personally, I find my body gets stiff sometimes, and it's good to do some kind of hatha yoga, stretching, postures, movements. Um, mindfulness can be practiced in any posture. The body can be in this posture sitting, practicing mindfulness of breathing or awareness of sensations in the body. Oh, you can also practice mindfulness while you're walking. You notice your feet touching the ground, the sensation as your heel touches the middle portion of your foot, your toes, and lifting and rising. And that can be very calming too. And it's good to do different postures. Even lying down is a posture. You may have seen a a, a statue of a lying down Buddha. They have a very famous one in Sri Lanka. The danger there is, of course, if we're tired at night and you do the lying down posture, you might just go into the snoozing posture, (laughs) which you lose a little bit of mindfulness there usually. But... um, So there are different postures, and with hatha yoga, you can practice as you move, as you feel the muscles in your body extending. I know the muscles in the body are extending. You can notice all the subtle different changes and sensations in your body, and that makes it really useful. So it's useful on two levels. The first being just good for your body to be not tight and tense, And secondly, to integrate that awareness with the movement. Well, like in postures, actually you're trying to control the prana. You go into a pose and you're supposed to return to the breathing naturally. Right. Well, you're speaking from a perspective of the kind of um, yogic tradition, whereas the... And I'm not trying to invalidate that. I'm just representing the Buddha's teaching, and he didn't talk about controlling the breath so much, but noticing as it is. When it's short, I know it's short. When it's long, I know it's long. So just different different traditions. Um, yes, in back. Um, so we all have troubles in our minds or things that are really out of our control or influence that's still impacting us. So is this mindfulness to be well and happy regardless? Um, 
the end goal. Yes. Um, well, yes, actually, the way you phrased your question has the answer in it, and that is we can't control. We can't control the circumstances in our lives. Um, you can't even control, I mean, we may try to control the breath, but there's things that are happening in our own body that we can't control. And the Buddha would say, can you make your mind think a certain thought when you want to think a certain thought? Uh, maybe for a short time. But um, you probably all notice that when you're sitting in meditation, thoughts just come randomly that you didn't ask them to come. So if we look at this whole notion of control, we'll see that we're, we're not in control even in our own body-mind until perhaps we've really cultivated the path a long way, like the Buddha. So externally, with regard to relationships of other people, how they behave and how they act, or circumstances in society, um, governments, political leaders, uh, big issues, yes, they can seem extremely overwhelming, and we can't control them. However, the Buddha did talk about um, cultivating the path of, of awareness and mindfulness because we can then be um, putting in the causes and the conditions that will lead to wholesome states of mind and action. So it's not like we have to give up entirely and say, well, I can't control, so therefore I'm not going to do anything. Because one of the chants you did is about mind is the forerunner of all states. So if we practice cultivating the mind, bringing wholesome states into the mind, such as the practice of loving-kindness, and um, reminding ourselves that the present moment is, is what we really can make it where we make a difference, then we don't have to feel despair and depression because that can happen so easily when we think everything in the world is just chaotic, right? And so we start here. We start here, and that's why the practice of loving-kindness is skillful, because we have to start with ourselves where we can, with our own mind states, because that's what's going to lead to the speech that is skillful and the actions that are skillful. And if we have wholesome states in our mind, then it's more likely we can share that goodness, that loving-kindness with others. So equanimity is a very high state where you... It's not like you don't care. Um, it's not the same as being... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Indifferent. It's not like... Oh yeah, I don't, I don't care about anything. We might really care about what's happening in the world, for example. So it's not to stop caring, but when we're caught, we're, we're, we're caught, we'll feel the pain. We'll feel, if we feel suffering, it's because we're either wanting something that isn't there. It's, we want something to be another way, or we're pushing away. We're not wanting. That's, some, that's one of the central tr teachings of the, the Buddha, which is the Four Noble Truths, the cause of suffering. And so we can look inward and discover if we're suffering, why is that the case? And we can work on that. And if we aren't suffering, 
then it's much more more likely that we will act and speak in a way that's going to help instead of harm. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Oh, okay, one more. Sure. Okay, so um, I had started uh, practicing in the 90s, um, getting interested in the teachings of the Buddha, mainly because of the challenges in my own life, you know, the, the experience of dukkha, things not working out so well. Even though externally there were a lot of conditions that I liked, but still there was something underneath that was kind of nagging and not feeling just right. So I wanted to understand that. And I knew that I could blame the external situation, um, certain things, but actually there was something inside that said, well, I think it's the way I'm relating to it that's making the difference. So I started to read books, and I started to do some retreats in the late 90s. And through that, I, I noticed that that really helped because no matter what was happening around me, I could find a stability. And I'm not saying I became enlightened right away or anything like that, but there was a way of coming to a place of refuge. It's like you chanted about refuge. Refuge in that the Buddha, the one who knows, that quality of being awake and aware. Refuge in Dhamma, the way things actually are. Okay, right now, there's anxiety, or there's anger, or there's frustration, or that's the way things are. So it's not about eliminating them, it's about knowing that, okay, this is here, what is the quality of it? It's rising, it's passing, there's causes and conditions, I could investigate those. So I just saw, okay, this is a, this is a technique and uh, that is very helpful with the... the um, tumultuous, you know, uh, aspects of what were going on in my life. And so a friend told me about a monastery, and it was in the tradition of the the, the, the Taoist lineage. And um, I had been reading some of the teachings of uh, some teachers like Ajahn Chah, Lumpur Sumedho, things, people, and it was in that tradition. So I thought, okay, I'll go over to England to this monastery. And it wasn't like I had thought, oh, I always wanted to go to England. It's just that that's where it was. And so I made that trip over. And at first I stayed as a lay guest, as people do, and just kind of felt what it was like to be in that environment. And it was very supportive, you know, with meditation every morning, every evening, following along with the monks and the nuns in the practice. And at one point, I I asked to ordain as a as a anagarika, which means a eight precept holder. And then it evolved from there, taking on ten precepts and more training rules. Um, and I lived in the monastery for eleven years. So after that, um, I came back to America because I grew up here, um, not in Wisconsin, but in California. I stayed in a monastery in the desert, and that's where I met uh, Bhikkhuni Vimala. And I have traveled around, as she mentioned, to various places. And it's a, it's a continuous um, 
learning, growing experience. So um, that kind of brings me up to where we are now. And I don't know how how we are with our time. Maybe is it eight o'clock? Then closing. We're just about. It's about time to close. Yeah. So I thank you for your um, attention and your questions, and like to encourage you to continue your journey on this spiritual path. Very valuable. <laughs>